Well, hi there. Thanks for coming back for another episode of Two Scientists. I won't keep you long. I just wanted to give a shout out to our most excellent patron, Andre Marushik, for his support. Andre is awesome. Be like Andre. Go to patreon.com forward slash two scientists and you too can support us for as little as a dollar an episode. This one's for you, Andre. I am not going to get my shot. I hate having to get my shots. Hey, yo, shots make me nervous because I don't know their purpose. So I'm Alrighty. not going Hello, to get science my fans. Shot. Today, the two scientists team comes to you from Washington, D.C. and a lovely little venue on a beautiful day called the Red Light. Um, our guest today is Dr. Tara Brecken. How are you? I'm good. How are y'all doing? Very well. Enjoying the weather. Dreading the marathon tomorrow. Oh, it's gorgeous outside, though. Yes, yes. As we usually do at the beginning of our podcast, we get our scientists to give us a little um, rundown of how they ended up where they are right now. So you started off as a basic scientist, but you are no longer. That is true. I, uh, I did my PhD in infectious disease at the University of Georgia and the Center for Tropical and Emerging Global Disease there. And um, about halfway through my graduate career, I'd say probably around year three, I started my own popular science blog, because I've just always enjoyed writing, um, and it was just a hobby. Um, so plug the blog while you're here. Oh, yes. The blog is called Of Microbes and Men. Uh, very punny. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, the, the basic point of the blog is just to talk about basic concepts in microbiology or new discover- discoveries in microbiology, but um, put it into the framework of popular culture. So movies or history, um, you know, we had a blog about the oral microbiome mm-hmm. tied into the Princess Bride. Yes. Um, so, and then the thought is just to communicate um, these really deep scientific concepts in a way that anyone can understand without any sort of scientific training. Um, and so after I was doing that for a few months, it occurred to me that maybe that could be a job, <laughs> writing about science. Um, and so I started um, writing for the university's PR department, for the vet school's PR department. Um, and then I joined our local NPR affiliate station and started doing a few stories with them. And um, eventually, <laughs> someone actually offered me a job. So I uh, finished my PhD and headed up to D.C., where I worked in communications at a global health nonprofit, the Saban Vaccine Institute, for a year. Mm-hmm. And um, just last week, I started a science writer position at the National Science Foundation. So we'll see how that goes. Very exciting. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited to, to work there. They're, um, it's just such a great place to be. Everyone there is so enthusiastic about science and getting everyone involved. You know, there's no, there are no silos there, and that's mm-hmm. what I just love about it. It's very yeah. collaborative and very open to the public. Which is how science should be, really. That's how it should be, but often isn't. I think it's getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a while where I feel like scientists would just hang out in their little silos and not talk to each other or anyone outside of science. Yep. And, you know, that's not good for anyone. <laughs> yeah. You can't answer any question with just one field set of ideas. And, you know, the public can't make intelligent decisions you know, from a policy-making perspective or just in their daily lives without understanding how the world works. I mean, that's the whole point of our job, right? Yep. So, um, yeah, that's a very long way of explaining who I am and how I got here. <laughs> We've had longer, I think, but that's okay, cool. Um, so going back to your basic science research, tell us a little bit more about the, the studies you did in malaria, I believe. 
Yeah, so um, I studied under Dr. Julie Moore, um, and the lab's primary focus is placental malaria. So mm-hmm. it's a special form of this blood-borne parasitic disease that's really common in tropical regions that specifically affects pregnant women. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, the, the mother is usually fine, yep. but it causes low birth weight, pregnancy loss, and it's, it's a really huge issue, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so I studied what it is about being pregnant and what it is about the mom's immune response that causes malaria to do this in pregnancy where it wouldn't otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also studied kind of as an offshoot of some of the discoveries we made in the pregnancy um, model. Yep. Um, we studied another form of malaria called cerebral malaria. Yep. And um, it primarily affects toddlers, um, children under five years old, again, in tropical regions, mm-hmm. and causes really severe neurological defects. They can yep. have um, seizures, coma, blindness. And a lot of times that continues even after um, they've been cured. So there's significant um, hits on IQ points and learning and growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very often fatal, too. Um, yeah. But again, we, we don't really know why it does what it does. Even if you treat with um, the, the drugs that we always use to fight malaria, yeah. sometimes these symptoms can still happen. Yeah. Um, so we were trying to figure out what is it that makes malaria do this weird, very detrimental thing in these two very vulnerable populations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we chipped away at it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So thinking back to malaria in general, I guess being from the Western world, it doesn't really occur to us how the disease proceeds, how people actually suffer from it. So what are the symptoms and things that happen within the body um, for somebody who's infected? Sure. So um, malaria is spread through mosquitoes. So mm-hmm. you get a mosquito bite from an infected mosquito and the parasite enters your body. Malaria is not a virus. It's not a bacterium. People often think it is. Mm-hmm. It's a single-celled um, eukaryotic parasite. And it goes to your liver, multiplies a bit, ruptures out, goes into your bloodstream, and that's where it hangs out for the rest of the disease. It stays in your bloodstream um, before you get bitten by another mosquito and it passes to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically as it goes into red blood cells, it'll grow and then burst and the red blood cell will literally explode. And as that happens, you have cycles of fever, chills, you get really anemic. So you lose a lot of red blood cells and your body isn't able to deliver oxygen, Mm -hmm. um, very efficiently throughout your body, um, causes severe liver damage. It's just really bad news. Um, so in a lot of areas, um, like I said, it can be fatal, especially in children. It yeah. can cause pregnancy loss in pregnant women. But um, a lot of times what it does is it just makes people very lethargic and unable to function at a normal level. Um, so even when it's not fatal, which it often is, yeah. it's still really impacting a person's ability to function as a uh, a productive member of society and it can have a huge impact on local economies yeah. um, it can have a huge impact on um, growth and development and um, learning mm-hmm. and it's um it can be a really big problem um, in many areas of the developing world even though we have effect- effective treatments against it mm-hmm. um, partly because it's simply impractical for someone to take these drugs every day for their entire life it's it's just not a good option. Um, But also, um, these parasites are very good at developing drug resistance. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so even when we come up with an effective medication, oftentimes, sometimes literally within a year or two of it being released into the general population, it, the malaria doesn't respond to it anymore. Yep. Um, so we have to be very careful with how and um, where and when we, we treat against this disease. Um, and there's no vaccine available yet. Um, we're working on it. There's um, Scenaria actually has a vaccine that um, is pretty effective, but it's not going to be practical for widespread use in the developing world, mm-hmm. in, in my personal opinion. Yep. Um, maybe don't tell Stephen Hoffman that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, that's, that's pretty much it. And actually... So in the Western world, it, it used to exist, too. Yep. Um, in the southern U.S., you know, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, mm-hmm. it was really prevalent until the early 1900s when they did mass DDT fogging and killed all the malaria-infected mosquitoes. Yep. Um, and so there's no more malaria here. And even up in around the Mediterranean and even in England, actually. Mm-hmm. So anytime you read Shakespeare, if you see the word ague, A-G-U-E, yep. they're referring to vivax malaria. It's, uh-huh. it's a species of malaria parasite. And it's the same thing. Fever, chills, lethargy, anemia. Yep. Um, they just didn't know what it was. <laughs> Germ theory wasn't a thing yet. <laughs> that, that's how malaria got its name, actually. Is In Italy, people were able to associate it with being near swamps because uh-huh. there are mosquitoes near swamps. Yep. But they didn't understand that it was the mosquitoes that mm-hmm. were doing it. They thought it was the foul air, the mal area oh. by the swamps that was giving them this illness. There you go. You learn something new every day. I'm full of little useless tidbits. <laughs> <laughs> so I want you on my career too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Obviously, this is one of the, the targets of, for example, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Do you know how well they're proceeding with trying to tackle it? Because as you say, this is kind of a good follow-on from our last podcast recording, actually, which was with um, Les Shaw, who's talking about antibiotic resistance and how we're all going to die. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, that's pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started on antimicrobial resistance because I'm just going to cower in a corner under a table or something. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we made a lot of progress. So I don't know if you've heard of the Millennium Development Goals, but um, 2000 rolled around and they set a, a bunch of um, lots of different goals in different areas of um, development. I'm focused mostly on the health side of it, obviously. Uh-huh. Um, but a lot of it was dealing with maternal um, and child health and improving um, under five deaths, a lot of which are due to malaria. Um, and so the Gates Foundation played a large role, among others, but the Gates Foundation helped a lot with um, really decreasing malaria incidents and malaria deaths, particularly mm-hmm. in that under five population, actually, like, partly through distributing drugs. Yep. I mean, that was a huge thing, preventative chemotherapy, especially in um, pregnant women and children, uh, so really vulnerable populations. But a lot of it really was um, distributing bed nets. Mm-hmm. Um, so the mosquitoes that transmit malaria will bite um, in the evening, as opposed to the ones that transmit dengue and yellow fever. They just kind of bite whenever they feel like it. Right. Um, so bed nets were really helping with that. Um, and a lot of vector control, so vector being the mosquito that mm-hmm. spreads the disease. Um, they did a lot of spraying of houses and um, you know trying to find ponds that might serve as a good place for mosquitoes to lay eggs and breed. Yeah. Um, but we've, we've sort of hit a plateau. So we hit all the low-hanging fruit mm-hmm. um, by doing these very reasonable, cost-effective, I guess, interventions, yep. I guess is a good word for it, 
But we've, we've kind of, we've kind of hit a point where, all right, we've knocked it down a lot, but if we're really going to eliminate or even, you know, pie in the sky, eradicate this disease, we need to come up with something new. Yeah. Um, I personally think vaccines are the only way that's ever going to happen. Can we develop a vaccine against malaria? I don't know. That's a very complicated question. They're very tricky little critters. Um, yeah. They change the molecules that they have on, on their surface mm -hmm. that our immune system would recognize and use to find them and, you know, kill them. Yep. They change it a lot. And there's a lot of variance, even within one person. So whether or not we're going to be able to do that, I don't know. Um, but I think that's kind of the, that would be the best way if it's technologically an option. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we've made progress, but I, we still have a very long way to go. So the subject of vaccines rather nicely segues into yes. the next stage of your career. So tell us more about that. So uh, after I finished my PhD, I came up to DC and I was working in communications at the Sabin Vaccine Institute. Um, so Sabin Vaccine Institute is a global health nonprofit who does a lot of great work. Um, Albert Sabin was the man who invented the oral polio vaccine, mm -hmm. the one that they distributed on sugar cubes that... Um, really helped kick polio in this country initially. Yep. Um, and when he died, his wife and colleagues started the Safe and Vaccine Institute to continue his work. He wasn't just focused on basic science, even though that was obviously a large part of what he does or, or did. He was really focused on making vaccines accessible to anyone. I mean, mm -hmm. both in our country and out. And so Sabin um, both has a research and development component. So um, working on developing vaccines for neglected diseases or diseases that um, don't really have a proper market. So pharmaceutical companies simply can't justify spending the money on early discovery for these vaccines. So yeah. Sabin helps fund and implement um, some of that research. Um, the other side of what they do is basically that idea of improving access to vaccines um, either through helping countries develop sustainable financing mechanisms so that they can afford to purchase mm -hmm. these vaccines and distribute them to um, their people, or um, a, a large part of what I did, and it's a fairly recent thing that they've only done in the last year or so, is um, working on handling the issue of vaccine hesitancy that's yeah. arising both in this country and, and internationally. It's not an, just an American issue. Yeah. Um, and just really figuring out um, how do we communicate with people who are vaccine hesitant um, in an empathetic and effective way? So instead of just saying you should vaccinate your child because science, yes, um, you know that that's that doesn't reach anyone. People who are vaccine hesitant do it for a good reasons, or at least they what they perceive to be yep. a good reason. Um, and so you know we really need to address their specific concerns. So. Um, Sabin both um, would release blogs and things about vaccine safety, vaccine regulation, things like that, um, but would also um, play a large role as a convening force. So bringing experts together to talk about either either vaccine hesitancy or, you know, typhoid, dengue vaccines, whatever the, the issue is, and bringing these experts together in a way that would otherwise just never have been possible, either because of funding or logistical issues, so that the top experts in the field can talk about the issue, share their data between each other, mm -hmm. and have meaningful conversations about how to move forward 
um, yeah. with what we know and what we don't know. Um, so I'm biased, but I think Saban's a great organization. Um, and, and I sort of just worked on communications for all of those aspects, mm-hmm. sharing that with people who, um, well, some people who are in the field, but also people who weren't in the field, policymakers, the general public. My pet project was sort of vaccine hesitancy and and, yeah. and figuring out how how do we go about talking to people about this really contentious issue. But yeah. So just today I was reading a course on Twitter. Where else would you read this? Um, a story about how Calvin Harris tweeted out some tirade to his 12 million followers oh, good. Uh, about how vaccines are not safe. And... Um, so my question to you is anybody who works with trying to get people to be covered by vaccines, how do you not lose the will to leave? Because I mean, (laughs) these people are clearly very influential and regardless of their background, people will listen to what they say and they start believing these conspiracy theories. I mean, there must be something that compels you to keep going. It's very frustrating. I mean, it's... It's very, very frustrating, especially from a social media perspective. Um, you know, just because people have, in, in a way that's unprecedented by anything in human history, this platform to share their thoughts, their ideas, their concerns, um, whether or not it's based in any sort of fact, um, which I think may, and not may, I think is contributing a, 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 in a large way to you know, the spread of these unfounded concerns about vaccines. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I'm an optimist. And so I see even the things that are causing these huge problems and barriers to us vaccinating people, us being the medical community in general. um, I also see the exact, those exact same mechanisms as a way to improve vaccine sentiment. So Spreading positive information on social media about vaccines, links to where people can learn about vaccines. It's not going to change the people who are like heels dug in, vaccines Mm -hmm. are bad. But that middle group, you know, like picture it as a bell curve. Those people in the middle who aren't sure, they're just parents who love their children Mm -hmm. and want them to be safe and understand the arguments for and against, but don't know which ones to believe, you know. I feel like we could more effectively use social media to counter that. From the celebrity perspective, same thing. So you have a lot of people who are not immunologists, who are not vaccinologists, who are not medical doctors, who are not pediatricians, who have no expertise in this field. But, you know, they're voices that people listen to. And, you know, so when they spout anti-vaccine rhetoric, um, whatever it may be, people will listen to them. But at the same time, if we can find allies who are leaders in the community, whether from a celebrity perspective or even locally, you know, a, a pastor who was well-respected within his church, a local mayor who was well-respected within his community, you know, they can be very effective in the exact same but opposite way. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've hit a point where, you know, it's, it's an issue and it has been for a while, but now the scientific community is recognizing that it's an issue. Yep. And that... Um, you know, these concerns aren't something that we should just wave away. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of research being done on how do we talk to people? What works and what causes them just to believe what they already believe, even 
stronger, even if it doesn't have any basis in reality or fact. Um, and the answer is that it just depends where you are. I mean, you have to listen to people's specific concerns, people's um, specific fears, the specific messages that are being told to them. Yep. Um, and, and really treat people with empathy. You know, don't just blow someone off as an idiot because they don't believe vaccines are safe. That's yep. completely unfair. Yep. Um, and I feel like that was part of the communication strategy, quote unquote strategy. Yes. Um, for for a long time, and all that did was alienate people. Um, yeah. And there's no need for that. It's it's not like we're trying to push an agenda for the sake of pushing an agenda. Yeah, we're trying to vaccinate people because we want children and their parents to not get sick. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think there's there's a a large element in our society today where you know in the fifties people. We're scared of polio. You know, in the summer, you couldn't take your kid to the pool because yeah. they might, probably would, get polio at some point, you know? Um, measles, mumps, rubella. All of these things were real fears. Yeah. Um, your child could actually die. Yeah. Good but, people. Yeah. But yeah. our generation, like, have you ever met anyone who had polio or measles or mumps or rubella? Nope. No. No. Um, and so now that, you know, our generation and the generation before us, our parents, we don't have any real experience with the dangers. And so these perceived dangers associated with vaccines seem more, I guess, urgent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I guess we've kind of lost perspective. Yep. Um, it's why measles vaccination rates increased after that huge outbreak in California yep. that originated in Disneyland. Yeah. Everyone realized, oh, wait, we are not invincible. Yeah. Um, and it's just rather unfortunate that we need these horrors to remind people that this is why we did it in the first place. Yeah, it's, it's awful. But at the same time, if you think about the course of human history, vaccines are super recent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like we're almost like in our teenage years of modern medicine, you know, like we're yep. hitting this era of antimicrobial resistance. We're hitting this era of vaccine hesitancy. And a lot of it's because we got these really cool, shiny new tools. And it's not that we didn't think long term. It's just that we had no... Um, no experience with which to picture what would happen long term with these shiny new technologies. And so now we're hitting kind of a problematic rocky point, but again, ever the optimist. I feel like in, in you know, however many years, I think we will overcome it and hit a point where we've learned lessons and kind of figured out how to move forward with some of these new medical advances. Mm-hmm. Might be way too optimistic. I know human nature is just <laughs> naturally kind of ornery and contrary. I get that. <laughs> but um, I don't know. Here's hoping. There's nothing wrong with being hopeful. There's nothing else to do, really. <laughs> Quite. That's true. <laughs> that's, that's how I haven't been hiding under a table for a while. <laughs> So I think that the other thing that comes from social media is this kind of dumbing and diluting things down into memes, mm-hmm. which is really not helpful. They, they can be funny. That's fine. But the, the problem is that what people take away from them is really not often very useful. So I was reading another report on how um, companies like Mars paid huge amounts of money for research to be done into chocolate as a nutritious substance. Uh. So... Um, yeah, all of a sudden, when we started hearing in the news that chocolate is good for you, there was a very good reason for that. Yeah. And I suppose this also goes to 
Um, when people get paranoid about where the money is coming from within science, those people are fueling the fire. Absolutely. Which is not helpful. I mean, it's because I think it is a very legitimate concern. You know, science does need to be impartial. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it loses all meaning. Yeah. Um, that being said, that doesn't mean because insert drug company here, Novartis or something, yes. provided money for a study, that doesn't necessarily mean that that study is flawed, biased, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it really does come down to, I guess, careful oversight. Mm -hmm. But there's an element of, I think the public needs to take responsibility for their own scientific education to some degree. Yep. You know, their own BS-a-meter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Being able to recognize what constitutes good science and what constitutes completely fake made up science that's meant to look real. Yep. And it's actually not that hard to spot fake science. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, I feel like people aren't taught to do it unless you are a scientist. Yep. Um, there are important cues to look for always. Absolutely. Um, I mean, this is kind of snobby, but partly look at the source. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if it's from, you know, Steve's Journal of Neuroscience, <laughs> um, there's a lot of predatory journals out there. And, yeah. like, you can do a quick Google search. Like, is this journal good? If it's not, <laughs> yeah. Google will let you know immediately. Yeah. Um, and so that's actually a, lot, a big issue with a lot of these vaccine hesitancy issues, especially the ones going around social media. They have some lists that everyone copies and pastes, and I know oh. that they've never read them. Mm -hmm. That's unfair the majority of people probably have not read every study on this list. But it's, you know, 100 studies that show that vaccines do cause autism. Right. And if you look at it, it's all either published in predatory journals, so it's just basically I give you $100 and you put my journal in, my, my article in with no peer review. Yep. Um, or they're really heavily flawed articles like Andrew Wakefield's paper um, that, you know, caused this first uproar of, you know, MMR mm -hmm. causes autism. Um and it bears repeating that this man was pulled up as a fraud. He was struck off from the British Medical Council. He cannot practice medicine anymore. He cannot. He had, uh, you know, financial interests involved. And it was just a very poorly designed study. Like, mm. even if even if it wasn't malicious, it was still a terrible yeah. study. Yeah. It was malicious. But even if it wasn't. Yeah. Um, I mean, totally different story. But it turns out him having his medical license revoked it doesn't matter to a lot of people. He's mm -hmm. become almost a martyr. Of yes. like, see, you go against the man, and the man is trying to cover up that vaccines do this. Yep. It's like, why do we care that vaccine that you vaccinate your child other than the public health? Yeah. Know? It it's the least financially viable aspect of pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, hmm, would well, they other than antibiotics, I guess, but we've been there. I guess that's true. But <laughs> actually you know what? Maybe even less than that, because it's it's would you as a person who makes medicine would you rather give someone three shots and they're good for the rest of their life, or would you rather they got that disease five times over the course of their life and you had to, they had to pay you to get the medicine to fix it every single time? That's a fair point. There's <laughs> an organization that I volunteered for way back when called Sense About Science, who have this wonderful hashtag called Ask for Evidence. So if you ever see a, a strange article, whether it be in a newspaper or some kind of meme, you can always tweet this out and they will treat it seriously. So you have a oh, series of volunteers great. who literally just go through these kinds of reports and they look at the science behind them and they say, well, this is uh, actually, this is a great study or this is utter bollocks, as we like to say. Um, 
So yes, Sense About Science, they have a branch in the US and you can find them on social media. So it's, it's a very quick and easy way to get a response from people who are already looking into um, suspicious science, shall we say. That's awesome. I, I Kind of adding to this conversation though, I think that something that gets lost outside the scientific community is the idea that science is an evolving process and no one study is the end-all be-all. Yep. And that doesn't necessarily mean that what we thought back in the 60s was wrong. It's just everything, even what everything we know now, like the entire breadth of scientific consensus is incomplete. We are continually learning new things. And so if you see three studies, one says chocolate is good for you, one says chocolate is not good for you, and one says chocolate can be good for you in moderation, uh-huh. <laughs> right? Those three studies are... If, as long as they're well performed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, proper controls, they're all right. Yep. It it comes down to when we do all of these studies in multiple different situations, performed by multiple different people, asking variations on the same question. What is the average answer? What is the scientific consensus on this question? And that's what we consider. Correct. <laughs> you know, the, the evidence leans heavily in favor of this thing across all situations. Yep. However, in individual, more specific circumstances, you know, it, it might vary bit by bit, you know. Also saying chocolate is good for you, it's like, okay, this molecule in chocolate has been shown to reduce yes. blood pressure if you have one square a week every day for 50 years. Yes. Um, it's not the same thing, right? <laughs> right? So stepping back to how you switch from uh, basic research to science communication, why, if science is so awesome, did you not pursue a career in the lab and continue on as doing experiments and running your own lab and training new scientists? I'm kind of the perfect storm of (laughs) reasons to form an alternate career (laughs) with your PhD. (laughs) I um, am. It's partly that I have the personality type where... I was in lab all the time. I mean, one of my experiment, experiments required me to be in lab for 48 hours for three-hour time points. Woo! And I, like, I would bring my dog into lab. He would hang out with me in my office, you know, away from the biohazard bins. Obviously. <laughs> and the sharps containers. And, um, you know, I'd take a nap on the couch in the hallway occasionally. Uh, I was a total zombie. Um, and so I had no concept of work-life balance. So that's part of it. Um, but then... Again, right around the time I started my blog, not a coincidence, I <laughs> had a series of experiments um, that I had been working on since I joined our lab. And I had literally like just finished the last round. And they're pregnancy experiments. So mouse gestational period is 21 days. Mm-hmm. You can't just say like, hey, mice, go get pregnant. Like <laughs> you have to pair them and wait. And, um, Some of them are remarkably difficult to breed. Oh my gosh, you have no idea. Like little mousy porn you need. I just playing a little bit of Barry White, yeah, you know, exactly. like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I had just gone through all of these experiments, finally finished it, very proud. It was going to be my first, first author publication. And then we realized we had a widespread Helicobacter infection in our colony. It's a little gut bacterium that causes a pretty strong general pro-inflammatory response. And so it was interfering with pregnancy, it was interfering with our results. And, um, well, I, I guess actually we didn't know if it was interfering with pregnancy or interfering with results. It's just that it very definitely could have been. 
And so we, we just couldn't publish it because we wouldn't know if what we saw was real or not, or if it was real only in this very specific set of circumstances. Um, and so we had to clean up our colony, which took a couple months, and um, our, our mouse tech, Caitlin Cooper, was just this insane mouse cesarean sectioning genius. It was crazy. But so, <laughs> um, needless to say, I was not pleased. I was, <laughs> I was one table flip away from a total mental breakdown. Um, <laughs> and um, so I decided, all right, you know what? I need something outside of lab. And I've always been a writer. So I started the blog as sort of a, an, an outlet. At the same time, I also got very into yoga and running, being very zen. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I guess the, the point is that there are options for younger researchers now, not only in science communication, but obviously science being developed so that the, the public is aware of what we're doing, whether it's um, funding bodies like the National Science Foundation, which is who you're working for right now, mm -hmm. um, or policy making. Exactly. Policy making is a new and exciting one, right? Yeah, I think it's an important one, too. There's, you know, all other professions in Congress. Why not scientists? Yes. Yeah. So, I'm going to hand over to other people to start asking you some questions. Oh, good. Yes. Okay, so. so, the question was, um, is there a difference between the communication strategy around vaccine hesitancy within the U.S. and outside, uh, particularly in developing countries versus the, the more developed world? Okay. Um, yes, but that's because I don't even think there's necessarily a dichotomy between developed and developing when you're, when you have like a strict dichotomy when it comes to your communication strategy. I, there's a lot of research on this. So Heidi Larson at the Vaccine Confidence Project, um, has a huge breadth of information asking this question among others. And, um, actually Julie Leesk at the University of Sydney has done some too, particularly around social media. Um, but it really, I think the one commonality is that there are no commonalities. You have to listen to each specific population and ask them, what are your concerns? Not just, hey, vaccines are good. Yes. Yep. It's why do you think vaccines are bad? Okay, here's how we can respond to that particular question. So sometimes it is vaccine safety. That's usually the, the issue in the U.S. Um, and areas of... Um, Ireland is really just kind of um, turbulent right now because of HPV vaccines. Mm -hmm. um, and, and France, they're worried about MMR and autism, among other things. Um, so that's often a question. And in which case, you know, you, you try and say, no, vaccines do not cause autism. We've done all of these studies. We found no correlation. Uh, you know, we've studied the individual components of vaccines, especially the ones you're worried about. And no, we have found no evidence to suggest that there are harmful effects in, you know, the healthy people that are recommended to receive these vaccines. Um, a lot of times, historically, there have been completely unrelated issues that are leading to this rejection of vaccines. Like um, in, in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, there were um, cases where um, populations were rejecting vaccines because they recognized that it was a priority for some of these, you know, foreign governments and aid agencies, but they felt, you know what, we don't have clean food and water. <laughs> um, we have more important concerns, address those, and then sure, fine, we'll help you reach your vaccination targets. 
Um, there are others where there is, um, you know, recent memory of actual abuses of the population, uh, either by their government or others. So, for example, mass sterilization campaigns. And so they think vaccines are a government conspiracy to sterilize people. And it's because, you know what, that has happened. Yeah. Um, and, and so it, it, it comes down to what are the individual needs and concerns of this population and how do we address them. Um, and sometimes it's just allaying specific fears. A lot of times it's reaching out to trusted community members um, and, and, you know, getting their help to speak to their people in a way that, um, you know, will really reach them and resonate with them. Um, and that's that's actually probably the uh, uh, that's probably true across the board, um, as we've seen in the example you gave of celebrities um, sharing anti-vaccine information and just being trusted out mm-hmm. of hand goes both ways. Uh, David has brought up the fact that we recorded a podcast with a lady called Sylvie Hoybian a few years back, and um, he was saying that basically malaria has not necessarily been cured. The kind of places that you were talking about, for example, in Europe and the US, the reason that it went away was improved health facilities rather than um, developing a cure against the disease. So and vector control. And vector control, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. So do you not think that's the way to go? Um, I think that there's no such thing as a magic bullet mm-hmm. in fighting infectious diseases. I think all of these things are important aspects to one comprehensive plan to eradicate not just malaria, but literally any disease. Um, And they're certainly less costly in the the short term. Um, So they're they're especially good for, um, I guess, fighting disease right now. But no, I mean, I, I think that there's no such thing as a best way. I think they're all the best way. So one of the other things I should point out before we leave is that Tara is actually the city coordinator of our Taste of Science events in Washington, D.C. So Tara, go ahead and plug your super cool events. So uh, the Taste of Science Festival, it's in cities across the U.S. every year. Washington, D.C. just started. Last year was our first year, and it's in April again this year. Um, and uh, it's an opportunity for scientists to come out of their labs and into pubs, coffee shops, uh, improv venues, <laughs> um, places all over D.C. where you would not normally expect to find a scientist, and just hang out, talk about their science, meet people, and um, really just stand there and let you ask them questions. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we've covered all kinds of cool subjects from um, exoplanet exploration with someone who works at NASA to uh, the science of beer making with um, beer making, brewing. Yes. <laughs> I love words. I are a communicator. Um, <laughs> the science of brewing with um, one of our local breweries and a microbiologist. Um, it's always a great time. And, uh, you know, you might learn something. You'll definitely meet a scientist and hopefully um, learn a little bit more about the scientific process. I think at this stage, that's probably a good point at which to sign off and say thank you very much to Tara for being here today and talking to us about her short and yet wildly varying career. It's awesome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is, this is really fun. All right. Thanks to Sahil for live tweeting this for us, as he always does. He should get some credit here. Um, and yes, 
We'll speak to you soon. Don't be scared, I'm here to help you grow stronger. Shots can help prevent disease, make you live longer. The problem is there are a lot of myths we have to conquer. Some people think that shots are harmful, but with every shot, we grow strong. So this was, if it wasn't my first meeting, it was close. It was like my second. I think it was my first. And um, so a, a big component of my dissertation was thrombosis and hemostasis. So blood clotting. Um, and how those proteins interact with the immune system. And so we went to this conference that they hold every other year. It's very small at UNC Chapel Hill, where um, like the preeminent thrombosis and hemostasis researchers in the world meet. And we were collaborating with um, one of the researchers there at UNC, who is just a huge name in this field. And I was so am still honestly kind of starstruck to be working with this guy and so <laughs> we, we went to this meeting and I presented a poster and I am still a baby at this point I'm like 22 23 um, and I I know I know nothing and I've never presented at, at a scientific meeting poster talk anything ever except for journal club um, and so I'm sitting there like so stoked and so proud of myself and how beautiful my poster is. It was awful, by the way. But at the time, I thought it was gorgeous and all of my really cool data. And um, a large part of what we did was take gross pathological images. So pictures of mouse guts, basically, um, to show the different, you know, outcomes of mm -hmm. our experiment. It was a, That was a pretty critical piece of data. And so my giant poster just has like 12 really truly disgusting pictures of like intestines and uterus and you know all kinds of nasty stuff on it and these guys they all study blood so like the grossest thing they deal with is little vials of blood there's there's none of that stuff and so um <laughs> the scientists that i really admire and had never met personally at this point and i've only met him like twice since um, comes up to my poster, and in my brain, I'm like, yes, and I'm dancing, and I'm so stoked. And I'm like, oh, he's going to be so impressed with me. <laughs> and so I go through my spiel, you know, the five-minute poster talk, and it's like, all right, well, I'd be happy to answer any questions if you have them. And he's just sitting there staring at the poster, and his only comment was, did you really have to put that many nasty pictures on this poster? And I just sort of, like, froze. And you could, retrospectively, he was messing with me. <laughs> I said words like, oh, I got to go change my feet or something. <laughs> and he was like, all right, that's great. I'll see you at lunch and walked away. And I swear, my face, in fact, I think I'm blushing right now. <laughs> I was so humiliated, um, but also very pleased because I got to talk to him and he looked at my poster and my data. And uh, that happened. I recovered eventually. <laughs> the diamond in the rough. Don't wanna bring her harm, course she is alarmed Gonna stick a needle in her arm Lance at 98, did you see the statistic? Vaccines can make our kid autistic, don't risk it Yo, the paper has now been disproven Falsified conclusions, all the data he was choosing Creating much confusion We need to know the science, gotta act soon Inject an act As Tara mentioned, our Taste of Science Festival is coming up at the end of April Find out if we're in a city near you at our website, tasteofscience.org
As for the track featured this week, we couldn't have found a more appropriate one. Thanks to Lucy, Stephanie, Molly and their teacher Tom McFadden from the Science Rap Academy at the Nueva School for their parody of My Shop from Hamilton. Available from Science with Tom, the YouTube channel. Head to our website to get the link. Until the next time, make sure you've got your shots. Wiped out because of vaccines So get your shots so we don't see a resurgency Now that you have some food for thought You should go ahead and get your shot You know antibodies help defend against disease So just go ahead and get your shot This man can get his shots I need to use it all immunity If you don't vaccinate, you will endanger me Endanger me? Yes, I have immunodeficiency Vaccinate because I can't defend against disease with a shot See, this man has a tough plight He can't get shots because his immune system can't fight If healthy people vaccinate, the weaker succeed Let's vaccinate the herd to help defend the people in need Okay, I'm not throwing away my shot I'm still going to get my shot I wanna help my community improve herd immunity I'm still going to get my shot I'm not throwing away my shot I'm still going to get my shots And now that we know the purpose We can do the world a service And go ahead and get our shots Ayo, it's time to get your shot Time to get your shot And I am not throwing away my Not throwing away my shot Am I asking myself a question right now? Sure <laughs> <laughs> I'm Clearly not, I've lost it